When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And thank you to those who have taken the time to leave a rating or a review. That really motivates me to give you the quality you deserve, and I love reading the reviews. It's good to know that different listeners enjoy different segments, whether it's the news roundup or the classic match reviews or even some of the simpler components like the music and the length of the pod. So definitely continue to provide that feedback. Also, happy belated Father's Day to all the papas out there. We've got another great episode for you today. In part one, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A, Europe, and Napoli. In part two, we'll talk a bit about the return of Serie A. And in part three, we'll preview Napoli's first Serie A match since football stopped, which we played against Hellas Verona on Tuesday. So getting into the news, the FIGC has officially extended the current season to August 31st, 2020, which means the new season commences on September 1st, 2020. That means any players currently on loan will remain on loan until the end of August. However, any players whose contract expires on June 30th will have to reach a private agreement with their club to extend their contract. There will be a federal council meeting on June 25th to discuss the women's Serie and it's expected at that meeting women footballers will be deemed to be professionals. There's also an expectation that Juventus will be awarded the Scudetto, as they're nine points clear of second place Fiorentina. Moving on, there's finally a resolution on broadcasting in the clear, and unfortunately it's not a great one. The Antitrust Authority has advised Serie that the existing broadcasting rights and the Melandry Law prohibit broadcasting in the clear, though showing highlights is acceptable. In Serie we now have the details of the promotion, playoff, and play out. Starting with promotion, Monza, Vicenza, and Regina have already been promoted. Monza, by the way, is owned by Silvio Berlusconi. The playoff is to determine the fourth promotion club. 
And the playoff is actually really complicated when you consider that only two additional teams are promoted. So I'll quickly explain how the playoff works, and then maybe later I'll post a visual on Twitter. So Serichi has three groups, which is loosely based on geography. So Group A is for the north, Group B is central, and Group C is southern Italy. The first round of the playoff is still divided by region. Six clubs from each group, which are the 5th through 10th place clubs, play in the first round, and the matchups are based on rankings. So if you take Group A as an example, 5th place Alessandria play against 10th place Juventus U23, 6th place Siena play against 9th place Arezzo, and 7th place Albino Lefe play 8th place Novara. So the first round has a total of 9 matches, and the winner of each match advances to the next round. This year, a number of clubs have pulled out of the tournament because of the cost of COVID, so their opponents automatically advance. The second round consists of 12 teams, the 9 teams that won their first round match, and the 4th place team in each group. In other words, the 4th place teams each got a bye to the second round. And again, these matches are played by region, with the highest seed playing against the lowest. The round after that is the quarterfinals, which is now a national round, so there's no more regional breakdown. This round consists of 10 teams, which are the six winners from the second round, and the third place teams in each group. So again, third place teams get a bye to the quarterfinals. The semifinals consist of eight teams, being the five quarterfinal winners, and the three second place teams in each group, who got a bye all the way to the semifinals. And then lastly, the finals consist of four teams, and the two winners each earn promotion to Serie B. The relegation playout is a bit simpler. Last place in each group will be relegated, which is Gozzano, Rimini, and Rieti. And then the final tier of clubs play in a tournament, with the winner not being relegated. Moving on to Europe, UEFA has amended its financial fair play regulations to account for COVID-19, while at the same time ensuring clubs maintain fiscal responsibility, and the way they'll do that is by combining 2020 and 2021 into one reporting period. Per an official statement by UEFA, these changes were aimed at achieving the following. Providing flexibility while ensuring that clubs continue to fulfill their transfer and salary obligations on time. Giving clubs more time to quantify and account for unanticipated loss of revenues. Neutralizing the adverse impact of the pandemic by allowing clubs to adjust the break-even calculation for revenue shortfalls reported in 2020 and 2021, while at the same time protecting the system from potential abuses, ensuring equal treatment of clubs where the impact of COVID-19 may be realized in different reporting periods due to clubs' various fiscal year ends and domestic league calendars, addressing the actual problem which is revenue shortfall due to COVID-19 and not financial mismanagement, and retaining the spirit and intent of financial fair play for football's long-term viability. Speaking of financial fair play, French club Marseille were fined 3 million euros for breaching FFP rules. In addition to the fine, the club will have 15% of their European revenue cut and will be forced to have a roster of only 23 players. During the 2017-2018 campaign, the club faced similar penalties after reporting losses of 78 million euros, the club subsequently agreed to not allow its losses to exceed 50 million euros, but then in 2018-2019, they reported losses of 91 million euros. This is a bit of a suspicious decision. We saw Manchester City banned from Champions League earlier in the year for violating FFP regulations. This decision sends a message to other clubs that if they violate FFP, they could simply face fines instead of getting banned. Moving on, let's quickly go around the other top leagues in Europe. In England, Manchester United drew Tottenham 1-1. That gave Chelsea the opportunity to pull away from United a little bit in the final Champions League spot. 
which they seized by defeating Aston Villa 2-1. Meanwhile, Wolves defeated West Ham to pull level with United in 5th. Liverpool drew Everton 1-1, so Manchester City will have the opportunity to pull within 20 points of the league leaders. Watford picked up an important point against Leicester to remain just outside of the relegation zone. And rounding off the week, Southampton defeated Norwich 3-0. Crystal Palace defeated Bournemouth 2-0. And with that result, Arsenal fell to 10th after losing to Brighton. Finally, Newcastle defeated Sheffield 3-0. In Spain, Barcelona drew Sevilla 0-0 on Friday, which opened the door for Real Madrid, who defeated Real Sociedad 2-1. The tiebreaker in La Liga is head-to-head, which gives Real Madrid the advantage. Besides Real Madrid, the only club with a 100% record since the restart of football are Villarreal, who are now in a Europa League position. Atletico Madrid has moved into third place after beating Valladolid, and Real Betis became the first club to fire a manager after the COVID break after losing their third straight match, this time 1-0 to Bilbao. In the relegation battle, Ibar picked up a big point against 5th place Getafe, and Celta Vigo pumped Alaves 6-0. Rounding off the week, Mallorca drew Leganes 1-1, Levante beat last place Espanyol 3-1, and Valencia beat Osasuna 2-0. In Germany, there was still plenty to play for on the penultimate day of the season. Dortmund clinched second, defeating third place Leipzig 2-0, both goals scored by Erling Haaland, who continues to score at a remarkable clip. Borussia Mönchengladbach moved back into fourth place in the final Champions League spot by defeating Paderborn with the help from Hertha Berlin, who beat fifth place Bayer Leverkusen. Hoffenheim defeated Union Berlin, and Freiburg lost to Bayern Munich, so Hoffenheim and Wolfsburg, who defeated Schalke, will both play in the Europa League. With both clubs on 49 points, the final match day will decide who advances straight to the group stage and who plays in the qualifying round. Rounding up the day, Cologne drew Frankfurt, Dusseldorf drew Augsburg, and Mainz beat Werder Bremen. Moving on to Napoli, after winning the Coppa Italia, celebrations broke out throughout Napoli, which has led to a pretty immature dispute between Matteo Salvini, who is the head of the right-wing league party in Italy, and Vincenzo De Luca, the president of the Campania region. Salvini has publicly stated that De Luca is responsible for dealing with the gatherings, which seems like a reasonable statement to me, but De Luca took issue with this comment and went off on Salvini, saying that what happened in Napoli would have happened anywhere else, and had this happened in Torino or Milano, no one would have asked the governors of those regions for anything. The league political party used to be called the North League, so De Luca specifically chose those two cities. But since this happened in Napoli, De Luca added the peasant decided to make comments, which is where his comments got a little out of hand. De Luca called Salvini a donkey, saying his face is like an ass, which is equally worn out. And he reminded Salvini that the obligation to comply with the national regulations belongs to the Ministry of the Interior, which is the equivalent of the federal government. Salvini obviously didn't take those words too kindly and responded that we're talking about serious matters not someone who earns a salary without solving the citizens' problems. On Friday, the players and staff had a celebration of their own at Terrazza Rooftop Restaurant in Via Manzoni. The players were all smiles and sang late into the night, and though the players left in stages, Gattuso and Mertens sang until 3 a.m. That wasn't the only party of the weekend. On Saturday, Fauzi Gulam threw a surprise birthday party for Kaladu Koulibaly and his wife Charlene, who happened to be born on the same day. Alan, Ospina, Callejon, Fabian Ruiz, and Dries Mertens all attended the whiteout party at the San Montana Resort in Ischia, and as usual, Dries was the life of the party. Speaking of Koulibaly, the latest reports are that Liverpool have offered 60 million euros for the now 29-year-old, 
which is miles apart from De Laurentiis' asking price of 100 million euros, Liverpool, who are owned by the Fenway Sports Group, who also happen to own the Boston Red Sox Major League Baseball franchise, recently passed up on the opportunity to sign Timo Werner because of financial trouble, so the low ball offer is not a huge shock to me. But if the previous reports that Koulibaly is not interested in joining PSG are true, then unless Manchester United make a massive bid for the Senegalese defender, it's looking more and more likely that he will play another season with Napoli. In other news, Napoli got more good news on the injury front. We previously reported that Kostas Manolas returned to the lineup for the Coppa Italia final. Stanislav Loboka returned to training on Sunday and completed the entire group training. Moving on to transfer rumors, Calcio Mercato are reporting that Napoli has reached an agreement with Lille for Brazilian defender Gabriel, which is reportedly worth $22 million plus $3 million in bonuses. The player would be on a five-year contract at €2 million Euros per season. De Laurentiis needs to approve the deal, and Lille are supposedly looking to work out a deal that would see Victor Osimhen move to Napoli as well. We'll close this segment with a hypothetical transfer question from our friend Eddie. When it comes to transfer rumors, you either love them or you hate them. If you haven't figured it out by now, I eat it up. And judging by Eddie's questions, I think he does too. So so Eddie asks about two players who haven't been linked to the club, but could be intriguing signings. The first is Liverpool's Nabi Keita. I'm certainly not an expert on the Premier League or Keita in particular. So what I like to do in these cases is reach out to people who are experts And it just so happens that the founding editor of World Football Index, which as you know is the football site I write for, also happens to live in the Liverpool area. James Knowlton is a writer for Morningstar and Forbes, so he's my go-to guy for anything Liverpool. And you can find James on Twitter at JDNalton. Knowlton is N-A-L-T-O-N. According to James, Keita has the potential to be Liverpool's best midfielder, but his rhythm has been disrupted by injury. Liverpool paid £52.75 million for him, which is around €60 million, and that's pretty expensive. And though his value may have gone down a little because of injuries, realistically this only makes sense to pursue if we sell Fabian. And even then, Keita reportedly makes about £120,000 per week in salary, which works out to over £6 million per year, so that's a really expensive option. The other player Eddie asked about is Patrick Schick. I'm going to save that one until next episode so I can put a little bit more thought into it. So that's it for part one. In part two, we'll talk about the return of Serie A. Serie A returned on Saturday, starting with Torino hosting Parma. The match finished 1-1 on goals from Nicolas Nkulu and Yuri Kuchka, but Torino will regret not walking away from this match with three points. Nkulu opened the scoring in the 15th minute, and after the goal, he pointed to the heavens and then took a knee in tribute to the late George Floyd and to show his solidarity to the Black Lives Matter campaign. Now, I generally try to avoid making any political statements on the pod, but I do want to say a few things here. First, I saw people on social media commenting about how it looked like Nkulu was bowing down to Belotti, in other words, bowing down to a white man. That's not at all what happened here. Belotti went over to celebrate with his teammate, 
And the first thing Nkulu did when he got up was give Belotti a hug. The second thing I want to say is that I was really disappointed that Serie A did not make any statements. We saw a number of clubs make statements on their social media pages. Roma will be wearing a Black Lives Matter patch on their jersey, but there hasn't been much from the league itself. By contrast, I watched the Manchester United Tottenham game, and those clubs both took a knee before the match. And racism, specifically racism directed towards black players, remains a huge issue in Serie A, so there is an opportunity here to make a statement and perhaps undo some of the damage caused by the monkey paintings the league displayed earlier in the year, and once again, Serie A got it wrong. Parma equalized shortly thereafter. Gervinho did well to cut the ball back for Kuchka, who got some power into the shot, but I really thought Sirigu could have done better. Napoli-owned keeper Luigi Seppe did really well in goal for Parma. For those who don't know, Seppe came from Napoli's Primavera squad and has been loaned out to various clubs since 2011. He played for Pisa, Virtus Lanciano, Empoli, and Fiorentina before joining Parma. And there have been talks about bringing him back to Napoli if either Ospina or Meret leave. Just after the break, Seppe made an incredible save on Simone Zaza from point-blank range. And then immediately after the save, Simone Jacoponi fouled Simone Edera in the box for a penalty. Belotti stepped up to try to score his first goal since January 5th, but his shot got way too much of the goal, and Seppe guessed right to make a really nice save. For the Napoli fans, holding on to hope that Napoli swapped Petania for Belotti, I thought he had a good match despite missing the penalty. He was very involved and played a few dangerous crosses for De Silvestri, and he ran the entire 90 minutes. In the 74th minute, Edera missed a wide open header from the 6-yard box, and though Torino should have walked away with 3 points, I'd be pretty happy with this performance if I'm a Torino fan. Every point counts when you're fighting for safety, and if they play like this on a consistent basis, I think they will avoid relegation. The second match on Saturday was Hellas Verona versus Cagliari. I'm going to skip this match here and cover it in part 3 as part of my preview for Tuesday's match between Hellas and Napoli. On Sunday, there were two more matches. The first match was Atalanta versus Sassuolo, played in Bergamo. During the moment of silence, the broadcast played a really nice montage of images from club fans. One image that I think will be really hard for anyone to forget is the army trucks lined up in the streets of Bergamo. Even without Ilicic in the lineup, Atalanta won this match 4-1 on goals from Jim City, an own goal, and a brace from Zapata. Sassuolo's lone goal came late in the match on a well-struck free kick by Mehdi Burabia. Despite the scoreline, Sassuolo were the better club for the first 10 minutes of the match, Golini was called upon to make a few important saves, but then Atalanta took over and reminded us how potent their attack is. As we know about this Atalanta club though, they do give their opponents plenty of looks, and this match was no exception. Sassuolo had a number of good looks, but just couldn't get past Golini. In the 71st minute, Gasparini was shown a red card. I'm not sure what he was running his mouth about with a 4-goal lead, but the card was somewhat meaningless in that Gasparini returned to the stands not long later where his players could hear him perfectly well. Atalanta increased their goal tally to 74 on the year, and their goal differential to plus 39, both of which are tops in the league. And a player I had my eyes on was Jeremy Boga. He played 60 minutes, but this wasn't his best performance. He had a chance early in the match that was called offside, but it showed his pace, and he also did really well to control the ball in his chest and get a decent shot off. In the 28th minute, he turned the ball over with a wayward pass in the middle of the field in his own half that eventually led to a Papu Gomez strike that narrowly missed the far post. In the 35th minute, he misread a Kyriakopoulos run and played a backheel pass to no one, 
and in the 39th minute, he made a lovely dummy to allow a through ball to Francesco Caputo, who then found Boga's run down the right wing, but he couldn't get past the Atalanta back line. The second match of the day was Inter-Sampdoria. Inter set up a fan wall on one side of the pitch with images of their fans to give the players further encouragement. Conte made only one change to the lineup from the Coppa Italia semi-final, which was to start Gagliardini over Brozovic, who picked up an injury in training. Meanwhile, Fabio Quagliarella did not play for Sampdoria. Inter won this one 2-1 on goals from Lukaku and Lautaro. Morten Thornsby scored the lone goal for Sampdoria. I know Samp is not very good, but Inter looked very good in this match. I think they definitely benefited from having played in the Coppa Italia semi-final, which in a way was a pre-season match for them. They dominated possession once again. They worked the ball around really nicely, especially on the goals. Lautaro was much better in this match than he was in the Coppa Italia, so after his value plummeted a week ago, it's now gone back up. On the first goal, we saw great chemistry between the front three of Lukaku, Lautaro, and Eriksen, and you would only expect that chemistry to get better as those three play together more. That was Lukaku's 18th goal of the year, which I'm sure far exceeds most people's expectations at the start of the year. He failed to tally that many goals in either of his seasons with Manchester United. I actually tweeted during the match that Inter could well be the best club in Serie A right now, and I don't know if I jinxed them, but from that point on, they seemed determined to prove me wrong. Thornsby scored in the 52nd minute, and Inter looked a little shaky in the final quarter of the match, but they did hang on to win 2-1, and with that win, they are now 6 points back of Juventus. So that's going to do it for this recap of Serie A. In part 3, we'll preview Napoli versus Hellas Verona. So I skipped over the Hellas Verona Cagliari match in part 2 and the reason for that is because this match is really the best sample of what Napoli can expect on Tuesday. Both Hellas and Cagliari started this match in the same form they were in before the break. Verona dominated the first 35 minutes of the match and they really seemed like they could do no wrong. They moved the ball beautifully and marked very tightly. A number of players really stood out to me. You can see why Amrabat was so highly sought after and why Fiorentina paid 20 million euros for him. He does a great job controlling the midfield. Lazovic had an excellent first half. He had an opportunity in the opening minutes that Cranio did well to keep out. He also linked up with Amrabat and played the cross in on the first goal. And he had another effort late in the match that smashed the crossbar. Di Carmine scored two excellent goals. The first was a header on the Lazovic cross. 
and the second was a gorgeous long-range strike that appeared to be going wide but bent inside the upright. The goal started with the Carmina winning possession before laying it off to Vera. Cagliari's defending was atrocious. Vera was 1v5 and somehow still got the ball back to Di Carmina for the goal. Really the only thing that could have stopped Verona's momentum was referee Gianluca Manganiello. He showed Fabio Borini a straight red in the 35th minute after a VAR review. Manganiello got this call horribly wrong. Both players are going for the ball. Borini got there first with the slide. His studs only happened to be up because he followed through on the clearance. He couldn't see Marco Rogue was there. Yes, his studs happened to catch him, but that was unavoidable and it was certainly not intentional. Verona had dominated the match so much that the red card only served to balance the skills. And sure enough, Cagliari pulled one back before the break on an excellent volley from Giovanni Simeone. Between Verona being down a man and both squads fatiguing, the second half was much slower. In the 78th minute, Luca Cigarini picked up a second yellow, and this wasn't a makeup call. Both yellows would have been given even if Borini wasn't shown a red, but I guess you can call that poetic justice. Fortunately, Cagliari did not level the score while they were up a man because Verona fully deserved the three points. I thought Badu looked good as well. It was nice to see him play a full 90. He's been pretty unlucky with injuries over the past few years. Future Napoli defender Amir Rahmani had a decent match. He did get pulled out of position a little bit on the Simeone goal, but other than that, he was solid as usual at the back. And with the win, Verona leaped over Milan in the table, so they now sit in 7th place. And if the season were to end today, then Verona would play in the qualification round of the Europa League since Napoli won the Coppa Italia. So there's plenty there for Napoli to be concerned about. The last time these two clubs met was on match day 8 when Napoli won 2-0 on a Milik brace, but I wouldn't put too much stock into that game. It was a long time ago and a different team under Ancelotti. What I would put more stock into is Napoli's form coming into this match. The club is obviously on a high after winning the Coppa Italia, which immediately restored the momentum they had before the break. And because of the Coppa, Napoli in effect had two preseason matches before the resumption of Serie A. Because of the match day 25 fixtures, the players have had a week to recover, so they should be fully fit to play. Verona, on the other hand, just played on Saturday. Even though they looked in form, I thought, like most clubs that played this past weekend, they began to tire out by the 65th minute. Juric only used three of his five substitutes. He replaced Valerie Vera with Miguel Veloso and Samuel Di Carmine with Mattia Zaccagni at the half, so Vera and Di Carmine should be fully fit. In a way, Borini's red card forced Juric to rest both of those players, which worked out well for Verona. But I think Juric will be pretty unhappy about that red card. First, it means Borini will not play against Napoli. And second, the way that match was going, Verona easily could have taken a 3-0 lead, which would have allowed Juric to make more subs and rest more starters. Instead, Cagliari pulled one back and he had to keep most of his starters out there for the full 90. This is also an indication that Hellas do not have a very deep roster. Outside of Saturday's starting 11, only Corey Gunter, Howell Davidovitz, and Matteo Pessina have played more than 540 minutes or the equivalent of 6 full matches, and both Davidovitz and Pessina are dealing with muscle problems. Verona do have some depth up top with 18-year-old Eddie Salcedo, Maria Stapinski, and 35-year-old Gianpaolo Pazzini. So this is a good spot for Verona's projected starting 11. I expect Juric to stay with the 3-4-2-1 because that worked really well before the Borini red card and consistency will be really important to end the season. Marco Silvestri will be back in goal. Rachmani will start at right back, Kumbula in the middle, and I think Gunter will start at left back over Alan Emperor. 
I don't expect any changes in the midfield four with Faraoni, Badu, Amrabat, and Lazovic. And with Borini out, I think Zakani will join Vera and Di Carmine in the attacking trident, with Di Carmine playing as the striker. For Napoli, I think we'll see three changes to the Coppa Italia final squad. I expect to see Ospina back in goal, and I think we'll see Politano start at right wing over Callejon. I also think we'll see Milik start over Mertens. Milik scored that brace in the first matchup, and you need height in the attack to deal with Verona's tall back line. So to quickly run through the lineup, we'll have Mario Rui, Kaladu Koulibaly, Nikola Maksimovic, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo as the back four. Demez, Zielinski, and Fabian in the midfield, though I wouldn't be shocked to see Elmas start over Zielinski, who clocked a ton of minutes in those Coppa Italia matches. And up top, Insigne will play on the left wing with Milik and Politano. The referee for this match will be Fabrizio Pasqua. His linesmen are Alessio Tolfo and Emanuele Prenna. The fourth official is Alessandro Prontera. And on the Vars, Maurizio Mariani, assisted by Giacomo Paganesi. In terms of the betting odds, Napoli are about a 1 to 1 favorite, Verona are 3 to 1, and the draw is 2.6 to 1. And for my prediction, I'm going to go with Napoli winning 2 0 like they did in the first match with goals from Milik and Insigne. I know Verona are fourth best in the league at home and also have the fourth best defense in terms of goals allowed, but as mentioned, I think they will have some heavy legs. I don't expect any type of hangover from Napoli. De Laurentiis wants to go for Champions League qualification and Gattuso will do what he can to deliver that, even though it's largely outside of his control. After the Coppa Italia final, Gattuso spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss. He said, I have a flaw which has stayed with me since my playing days. When I won a trophy, straight away I started to think about the next one we could win. So it's very good to have celebrated this fantastic victory in these past few days. But from now, we have to concentrate because a difficult game awaits us in Verona. I'm happy that the guys dedicated this trophy to me. It was a great gesture. They know that I'm always their friend, but they also know that when training starts, I can be their worst enemy, depending on effort on the pitch. There's no spite at the end of the day and we move on. That's how I am. I give everything for my players, but I expect as much back. We are doing well, but we can grow in many aspects. We know what our strong points are and what we have to improve. For example, pressing higher up and playing the ball. We have to be ready to face the next 12 league games the best we can. We have to forget what has been done and have a clear mind to try to climb positions in the table. So that sounds to me like a manager who's focused on winning in Serie A. And lastly, I think Verona will have a hard time penetrating this back line. The only goal Napoli have conceded in the last two matches against two big clubs in Inter and Juve was that fluke corner kick goal by Eriksen. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Verona. That will also do it for episode 20. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star rating, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. I've mentioned previously that I like to get the perspective of Napoli's opponents, so stay tuned as I will be releasing another bonus pod shortly after this one, with a special guest representing Hellas Verona. We'll talk to you later in the week to do a review of that match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre.
Ay selen aire melesa yette tu sayado Tu sayado Ados tu cor ingrato que o despiete Si fuye, el asta está, el asta está. En un te corre a pie, son un te fluye, su lago la. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.